0: of the show. Welcome to episode 32 of the Relaxed Dog podcast, sponsored by therelaxeddog.com. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Robert Ober, and I hope that you and your dog are well. This week... I'll be chatting with Sue Alexander, and she's going to be telling us all about her Chesapeake Bay Retriever, Deef. But first, in some doggy news, in New York, in America, a dog by the name of Maggie, who is a pit bull malinois mix, Whoa, that's an interesting one. Was uh, adopted from a shelter and returned and adopted again and returned. Uh, Things weren't looking that well for her until the Southern Tier Police Canine Association found her, trained her, and Maggie is now the newest member of the Awego Police Department in New York. So bad guys, beware. And over in China, in Quidong City, there was a family that had a dog by the name of Ping An, and they were going to do some home renovations. So they took Ping An to a friend's house about a two hour or so drive away. I think it's a bit over about hundred Ks. Um, the renovations did drag on for a little bit for a few weeks and they were quite distraught when their friends had to tell them that Ping An had escaped. But uh, a couple of weeks after that, Ping An was found back in Hudong city where some workers found her, of course, put her on social media, on WeChat, which the family recognized her picture from, and now they're all happily back together again. Okay, on to this week's interview. Welcome to the Relax Dog Podcast. I am here with Susan Alexander. How are you?
1: Good. How are you, Robert? Most people just call me
0: Sue. (laughs) I'm happy to do so, Sue. (laughs) And I understand we're going to be talking about Deef today.
1: Yeah, Deefer or Deefer Dog or Deefy Doo. (laughs) Uh, Probably the greatest dog of my life. Um, He was an incredible, incredible Chesapeake Bay Retriever who is sadly missed, uh, but... Wow, I was honored to have him as a big part of my life for uh, 13 incredible, amazing, sometimes frustrating years.
0: Uh, Nice. So I guess like what I do with most of the show, um, if you take us back to before you guys met up and lead us into the uh, hows and whys of that meeting.
1: Well, it's interesting. i um I'm a professional dog trainer, as you know. And just before I met Deef about a year before I met Deef, I was on a lot of internet forums. And at the time we had the bulletin boards. I don't know if you remember those um where you know we all chatted, and it was pre facebook So we really didn't didn't have a name face to the name, but I was on one um, one retriever. Um, um, bulletin board and they were talking about a retriever who had some aggression problems and I thought I was pretty pretty hot stuff with aggression and I got on and I said you don't need to be aggressive with aggression uh, aggressive dogs you need to be thoughtful and you need to train them but you don't need to be dominant or, or rough or tough and the lady who went on to become my breeder was on this and said, hey, wait a minute, this sounds really different from things that people have been telling us about retrievers, where we've been learning all the way along about how retrievers must be taught who's the boss and who's alpha. And of course, in the retrieving world in North America, there's a lot of shock collar trainers still, um, but even more so then. And she reached out to me and her name was Amy Dahl, Still is Amy Doll for that matter. <laughs> and uh, she has Oak Hill chem- kennels in North Carolina. And she said, tell me more. And Amy and I went on to become quite good friends. And she had a bitch named Monday. And she said, Monday's having a litter. You need one of these puppies. And I said, well, I want Chesapeake. And I'm interested in Chesapeake, but I don't know. And she's like, no, no, you need one of these puppies. And we were looking for a dog for my husband, John. And John at the time was in university and uh, just finishing up his degree. And she said, you need one of these puppies. And I kept saying, "Ah, I don't know, Amy. And she's like, no, no, you really need one of these puppies. And when he was nine weeks old, um, they shipped Deef to us. Um, and uh, he got off the airplane and he was going to be John's dog. And so this is where, you know, it's John's dog. It's not my dog. And John is brilliant with puppies and young dogs. I do not have John's talent with, with puppies and young dogs. And John was at university and I was, you know, building my dog training business and, busy with dog training and so on, and and John was in the financial field at the time, and he took Deefer to puppy class, and I went with him, but it was John's dog, and then John graduated from university and got a full-time job in Toronto, which is a 90-minute train ride from where we live, and all of a sudden, Deef didn't have a partner anymore, and it fell to me to exercise him and keep him amused. And the thing about a Chesapeake Bay Retriever is they are very, very smart, and they are tough dogs, and they need a ton of exercises Adolescents, And before you know it, um, I had a Chesapeake Bay Retriever that I wasn't intending to have because at the time, I only had German Shepherds. Um, and I already had two German Shepherds at that point. Now I had two German Shepherds and two Chesapeake Bay Retrievers. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I ended up, and that's not to say John wasn't in their lives. It's just that John was building his career at that point and didn't have as much time for them. So that is how I ended up with an inadvertent Chesapeake Bay Retriever. And that, you know, I was busy with with training dogs and I was um, starting to train service dogs at the time. and so. All of a sudden, I've got this Chesapeake Bay Retriever who is really, really smart and really, really active and really, really self-assured. And he kind of walked into my life with a larger-than-life personality.
0: (laughs) So, firstly, Deef, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on the name?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, if you're going to have a dog, then you have to say D for dog. And uh, there's a funny story about that actually because I we called them defer, um, and most people didn't really know what that meant. A lot of people thought it was defer, as in you defer to me, but it's actually defer dog, and the fur is kind of the the Southern American accent for four. So if you were going to say for, it's a fur. Okay, and uh, so it rhymes with fur like you have on your fur. Well, when Deef was about seven or eight years old, we had the opportunity to be on stage with a very famous Canadian, um, a fellow named Stuart McLean. And in rehearsal, we had we were on stage. It was a live event, and it was a fundraising event. And he said, what's your name? And I said, Deef, Deef for dog and the pianist got it and and he made us a little riff and it was kind of funny and and Stuart just looked at the pianist and he kind of went like I don't get it but all right and just carried right along anyways when we when we went live we had an audience of about 700 people and I he said what's your dog's name and I said D D for dog and the audience got it and all of a sudden Stuart got it and Deef looked up at him and cocked his head like it's about time <laughs> and so he had a great sense of humor um he really did but so that's D for dog and you would call him D for, his registered name was Baker's pride of Oak Hill and Oak Hill is his his kennel um, and Diefenbaker because he came to Canada. And um, if you're listening from Australia or somewhere else in the world, you probably don't remember uh, George Diefenbaker, who was a prime minister of Canada in the 50s. And he did great things and he did not so great things. And he was sometimes popular and sometimes not. He was a bit controversial, like all our prime ministers are. Um, and so we named him for for Diefenbaker but uh, called him Defer. And, of course, that got shortened to Deef, Deefy-doo, Deferoo, Deefy. (laughs) Nice. Or sometimes Defer Alexander, what are you doing? (laughs) Which is all one word.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the formal one. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned that you did have a few other dogs in the household. How was the initial integration when he was a Papa and adolescent?
1: Well, we actually had four dogs at the time. We had Buddy and Crow, who were my German Shepherds, and then John had an older Chesapeake named Bear, and then we had... Oh, let's see. We had a service dog in training in named Wargus, and we had uh, another service dog in training named Phoenix, and then we had a parade of bored dogs who came in, and usually there were somewhere between, say, 7 and 11 dogs in the house at any time, but I have a very funny picture of Deef The morning after he arrived home and we introduced him to Bear and the look on Bear's face, he was the older Chesapeake, he was about maybe 11 or 12 at the time, was, you're not keeping that, are you? (laughs) Seriously, do not even think about bringing that. You brought that into the house. (laughs) And he was not impressed. Now, we also have some very cute pictures of Deef when he was about 11 or 12 weeks old, cuddled up with his head on Bear's hawk with Bear sound asleep beside him. Um, and, you know, it, it, they got along in the end. Um, Chesapeake's are funny. They're not a breed that is known for being dog-dog friendly. And that certainly was true later in life for Deef. But, um, you know, Bear learned to tolerate Deefer. He was not impressed to start with, though. Crow was just very easygoing. He was like, oh, it's another dog. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? And Buddy was just so tolerant. And he was older than Bear. He would have been 14, maybe 13 or 14 at the time. And he was very tolerant with puppies. So... You know, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. I mean, we we're very structured in how we bring puppies into our lives. We do not just open the door and let them out. Um, so he would not have access to our adult dogs on a regular day-in, day-out basis for a couple of weeks because we would integrate slowly. We would participate in dog walks. We would make sure that the adults were very low-key with the puppy. Um, So, you know, it it came along the way that we wanted it to come along. But being a professional trainer and having up to 11 dogs in the house, you can't just open the door and hope for the best.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Very, very wise. Thank you. Okay. The, any... You know
1: what they say about uh wisdom? <laughs> wisdom is the, the product of experience. <laughs> yeah. Experience is the product of mistakes.
0: <laughs> so did he uh teach you any uh did did give you much wisdom in the early stages? <laughs>
1: Ah, yeah. (laughs) Deefer's wisdom as a youngster was primarily do not leave a Chesapeake unattended (laughs) Um, because they are very bright, very persistent dogs. And when he wanted something, he would work very hard to get it. And I remember one time when he was about seven months old, I was working the other dogs on the driveway and I had left him loose in the house with a bunch of other dogs and he'd finally had it. So he decided he was going to jump through a plate glass window he did and he de-gloved uh, one of his legs and did an enormous amount of skin damage to the other leg and the wisdom on that is if you are going to have multiple dogs in your lives have a rock solid drop so that you can get every single dog to lie down and stay for as long as they need to and I teach all my dogs a relaxed one hour downstay so all of my dogs who were older than about eight months all had a one hour down stay um i just asked him to down asked all the dogs to down and i had i did have at the time probably nine or ten dogs maybe 11 dogs in the house and i dropped every one of them and there was glass everywhere and fortunately i had a friend with me she had her dog there um she came in and and um wet down some towels and wrapped his legs up in towels while I carefully escorted each of the other dogs around the glass to their crates, crated every single dog we had, and then rushed him off to the veterinarians. But one of the pieces of wisdom is, if you have multiple dogs, you need control behaviors and you need them fast. And wow, did we ever miss a bullet there because although we had one dog who had serious, serious injuries, we did not have 11 dogs with cut up feet because I was able to drop them. And when I work with families with multiple dogs, that's one of the things that always baffles me is that you need breaks. If you don't have breaks, and I have people who say to me, oh, well, you know, we can send them to Matt. Well, that's great until you've got something dangerous like, you know, an antifreeze or glass or medication spilled on the floor. You want to be able to drop every dog in place exactly where they are. Um, and, and, you know, so he had lots of wisdom for me as a youngster, but most of it was cautionary tales.
0: <laughs> Did he suffer any long-term effects from that episode?
1: No, no, his Chesapeake, we stitched him up and eight weeks later, he was running around like nothing had ever happened. He'd never, ever jumped through another plate glass window. Um, But it was, you know, it was also a lesson in when you have a dog who knows what they want and is willing to do what it takes, they will do anything to get where they're going. And that can, in fact, be a problem. Um, And, you know, I think, a lot of people would say to me, you know, oh, Deef is so wonderful. I'm gonna get a Chesapeake. And I would be saying to them, do not get a Chesapeake Bay retriever. You do not want one of these dogs. I love them. I would, you know, I wish I had a chassis in my life right now. And oh man, they are hard dogs. <laughs> I mean, they they are tough, tough, tough dogs.
0: Take us back. When he was still sort of like adolescent, um, any particular differences in in training for him?
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, he does. He comes from a long line of retrievers, and they were all collar trained using shock collars for retrieving ducks, and these are. You know, these are really, really tough dogs who make their living retrieving ducks and geese and, and you know, going through heavy, heavy brush and into very cold water. One of the people, things people don't realize about the Chessie is they were bred to retrieve ducks in the Chesapeake Bay area of the United States. And the water there is about four degrees Celsius during hunting season. So that is dense, cold water. And it's salt water, and you know these dogs will will um, they will will hunt for eight to ten hours a day with no problem at all. So they're really really tough dogs, and a lot of the people who train Chesapeake Bay Retrievers train with a lot of force. And it's not unfair force. It's, you know, don't put your hand in the fire because you're going to get burnt kind of force. Because they're so tough, they suck back that kind of training very, very easily. But I don't I don't use collars, shock collars very often. I use them for things like um, killing stock or chasing traffic, that kind of thing. But I don't use them regularly. I think I've used my shock collar once in the last 12 years. um, And I've thousands and thousands and thousands of dogs. And I used that on a dog who had pica and we had to teach the dog not to eat rocks. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had tried a lot of other things before we tried that. So these are tough dogs who regularly suck back shock like nothing. What a lot of people don't realize is they are also phenomenally sensitive dogs. So I clicker train Deef as I clicker train all my dogs, primarily through shaping and capturing, although I did do a little bit of targeting with, with a target, but I don't do luring. And I will tell you, that dog was so sensitive. And all I would have to do is look sideways at him and say, Deef. And he was like, oh, sorry, oops, didn't mean that. Um, and you know, a lot of people don't realize that, but he is my poster child. For most often, we don't need to use a lot of heavy-handed training. We can do a lot by saying, when I choose to use something punitive, and I use the word punitive in the the behaviorism sense of anything that will decrease a behavior. If the dog is not getting a lot of punishment. Then very little punishment becomes extremely meaningful to the dog, and this is a dog who was so tuned into me. And you know, I had people say to me, "Raise your eyebrows in that dog," and he would he would just be like, "Oh no, I'm I goofed," um, and he took me very very seriously. And I th- I think that that's you know that's a, a training thing that was a little different with him.
0: Mm-hmm. So was he getting trained uh, to? be involved in in hunting or was he what was the intent
1: I, the original te- intent was for him to be my husband's sports dog um so you know he started out doing obedience and rally obedience and a little bit of agility and so on but when john went back to work when Deefer was about a year old uh, he was kind of at loose ends and you know that meant that it was up to me and so the first thing that i did was i started doing some tracking with him and he was he turned out to be a phenomenally talented tracking dog. Um, I never showed him in, in tracking. um, And that was just circumstance. I had a very busy life. I showed him in obedience, um, but I I didn't show him in, in tracking, but um, you know, he, he, he started just being my all around dog. And if I wanted to try something, I, I would often try it on him. But the other thing is, is that at about a year of age, when John, sort of stopped training him, I was busy founding an organization called Canine Helpers. And that was an organization that lived about maybe nine or 10 years. And it was a service dog organization. And I was training service dogs for other people. And I live with a variety of mental health issues, um, including anxiety and depression. And I remember one day we were in the bank and I had a service dog with me and I had an appointment with my husband and, and the bank manager. And I said, oh, I should send this service dog back to the car. And John looked at me and said, no, no, don't do that. Don't do not do that. We, We need you to have the service dog here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you are much better at the bank when you have a service dog. Anyways, as often happens with service dogs, there came a point where most of the dogs that I was working with were placed and I was going to taking some university courses and school is something that is particularly difficult for me. I I was having flashbacks related to school and so on, and I needed a dog to take me to school and DEEF was available. And so I started taking DEEF with me to school as a service dog in training all the while, of course, telling everybody, no, no, when John gets time, he's going to take this sport dog back. This is just an interim solution till I get my next, my next service prospect on the ground. No, no, I, I'm not really looking for a service dog of my own. And about 18 months into this, we realized that first off, Deef tuned into me like none of the other dogs did. And the other thing is, is that we had an incredible bond he knew what I needed and I knew what he needed. And the two of us were hand in glove and we just worked together all the time. And it was amazing. So that Beautiful was kind thing. of how he ended up getting a career completely inadvertently. And I laugh because whenever I'm working with somebody now who's looking for a service dog, the first thing I tell them is, the most important thing is choosing the right candidate for the dog job. I would be a rotten receptionist I do not like answering the telephone, so do not hire me to be your receptionist. That would not work. And likewise, do not hire a dog who is not suited to the work to do service dog work. And I really think that that's true. Deef was one of those rare exceptions who was a dog on the ground who happened to be in the right place in the right time and who happened to be phenomenally, phenomenally talented at the work that we asked him to do.
0: Uh, some. Well, I find sometimes in life that uh, whether it's fate or karma, but sometimes the right things just happen to the right people and the right dogs.
1: Absolutely, and and so at you know by the time he was about two and a half, um, it, it, the writing was on the wall, and that was the end of that. He was my service dog, and from there he took me all over North America, and and I was speaking internationally. I was speaking at places like I, I was one of the keynote speakers one year for the Canadian Association of Professional Pet Dog Trainers that has now dropped the professional. They're just, uh, wait, no, they've dropped the pet. So they're now the Canadian Association of Professional Dog Trainers. Um, I spoke um, at a variety, I, I think we did. I, I remember keeping track one time of airplane trips and he and I made 150 trips together all in. And in fact, on the very last flight that he and I took together, the stewardess greeted us at the door and said, is this his first flight? And he was 13 years old. He had wrist braces on. He was gray in the face. And I said, no, this is his 150th trip.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he travels well?
1: He did. He traveled very well, and you know, one of the things that people don't realize is traveling in commercial conveyances is very, very difficult for service dogs. Um, you know, the expectation is is that they will fit underneath the seat in front of you in an aircraft, but that can require them to absolutely slither under. And he wore a full vest pack, which meant sometimes I had to take his vest pack off to fit him underneath the seat. Wow. And that could come, sometimes create problems. I remember one steward we saying to me. he has to wear his vest under the seat. And I'm like, if he does that, he'll get stuck. And we had a huge argument about him being vested or not vested that ended up with her supervisor coming along and looking at her and saying, don't be ridiculous. He has to fit under the seat and he'll get stuck under there if he wears his vest. Um, but, you know, we did a lot of airplane travel. We also did a lot of train travel. And that's a, a much easier conveyance for dogs. Um, it gives them a lot more leg room. They can stretch out. But the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is the floor on an airplane and the side walls are very, very cold. And it can be really uncomfortable. And turbulence can be very difficult for dogs because they're very comfortably curled up on, at your feet, whether that's in bulkhead or under the seat in front of you. And then all of a sudden, if you hit turbulence from their perspective, the floor drops from underneath them and just mm. disappears. And it's it's very disconcerting for them. Buses are difficult. Um, first off, bus floors, if you're traveling on a city bus or a subway, they're often filthy dirty mm. and that can be problematic. But if you're traveling on like a, what we would call a greyhound bus, a sort of a long haul bus that you, you folks might have, those just don't have a lot of space in them for the dogs, and it becomes very difficult for them to travel safely and comfortably. So, you know, he did do a lot of traveling with me. Um, he made it possible for me to have a speaking career, which was really wonderful. And that went on until, oh, I think we'd been partnered for about seven and a half or eight years when I fell off a horse. And this is going back about nine years ago now. And I got a traumatic brain injury and that decreased the amount of public speaking I was able to do enormously. Um, and But at that time, his job shifted. Instead of doing mostly psychiatric support, what he did was he shifted to being able to do things like I couldn't bend over without falling over. So he would retrieve things for me and he would open doors for me. So, you know, the handicap door buttons, he would hit those to open the door for me. Um, he would help me to um, find my way in space because I lost the ability to navigate terribly well. Um, I, would, I would, instead of walking in a straight line, I tend to drift to the left. And he helped me to stay, no, I was drifting... Drifting to the right. And so he would brace me on the left and keep me walking in a straight line. So there were a lot of things that his job changed. And that's actually really not all that uncommon with service dogs is that their job will change as people's abilities change. And sometimes our abilities improve and sometimes our abilities decay. And, you know, in the disabilities world, we talk about for all of the currently abled. Um, because most of us experience some form of disability in our life, it's just a question of when. Is it when we're elderly and we can no longer stand on our own? Is it when you know we have fallen down the stairs and broken a leg and and can't stand or walk? Um, you know, so there's lots of ways that we can become temporarily disabled. Um, and so as that shifts, often a service dog's work changes.
0: I um, always think that that's shows how in tune that that a service dog can be with the the human that it's assisting and and they sort of like process things on a on a totally different and higher level that that even people can't see that they will adapt to the needs that that they they just sense
1: I don't know if they just sense it. I mean, we did have we did have one situation where Defer just sensed something, and that happened when I was um, I he he and I had been partnered for probably five or six years. One of my other dogs had GDV, which is gastric dilation and volvulus or torsion. So his stomach flipped over, and a friend of mine. Um, rushed us to the emergency vet and then they we had to rush from the emergency vet up to the Ontario Veterinary College and they got him into surgery and you know it was it was really, really tense. It was really stressful. And they told me at the desk, the surgeon said to me, Sue, that's a 50-50 chance whether he'll pull through. I think I can help him out but it's a 50-50 chance. And I was, of course, devastated, terribly upset. This was one of my sport dogs. Um, he was my first protection dog. So I was doing protection training with him. And I was pacing up and down the the waiting room, crying and and all upset. And I phoned John on my cell phone and I said, John, I need you to bring Deep. I really need my service dog. So John got his his vest and put his vest on him and put him on the truck and drove the dog van across town to the veterinary college. And John told us later that when he was about eight kilometers away from the veterinary college, Deefer started to scream in the back. And John thought, oh no, Diefer's hurt himself. So he knew he was going up to the veterinary college anyway. So he didn't stop because what's he going to do? He's not a veterinarian. He drove up to the veterinary college, pulled up the front door, he opened up the side door of the dog van and Deefer was throwing himself against the crate door. And John opened up the crate door, grabbed his leash, thank goodness he did, because Deefer dragged him across the parking lot, up the stairs and started to throw himself against the door. I opened the door and Deef jumped up and he pushed me to the ground and all four feet on my chest, pushed me to the ground. I got up. He pushed me down again. I walked into the waiting room and he pushed me into a seat and then he stood on me in a chair and he just wanted me to stop pacing and stressing myself out. And, you know, he was about eight kilometers away when he started to scream. And we have talked about this. How did he know So, you know, there are times when things were just spooky, where he made it up on his own. And that's really, really important. But I would say that the other important thing to understand is when you live with long-term disability, the name of the game is something called accommodation. So if you think about, you know, if you are particularly short and you need to go to the grocery store, you could carry a stool with you and put it in your grocery cart. And when you need to pick something off the top shelf, you can pull your stool out and accommodate your height so that you can reach that top shelf, right? And that's a really great way of accommodating not being tall enough to get what you want. Well, when you live with a disability, everything is accommodation. So for me, one of the things that I couldn't, do because of my disability had to do with grocery shopping and that was walking down an aisle where I would have repeated visual stimuli and that could trigger a flashback in me and it was fascinating to me because it wasn't until I worked with an occupational therapist that she pointed this out but the way that I accommodated that without really thinking about it is I would start to have a flashback. I would get worried about it, and I had taught Defer to take me to the front door of the store. So when I started having a flashback, I would say, oh, Defer, I need to go outside, take me out. And Defer would take me to the front door. Well, it didn't take too long for Defer to start going, uh, oh, wait a minute. You're going to have a flashback. I know you're going to have a flashback because in a minute, you're going to tell me to go, no. OK, we're still not sure how dogs know this. We have some thoughts. And one of the thoughts is that we think that they are able to smell biochemically a change in us as we approach that state of either panic attack or, or a flashback or something like that. And the dog, dog smells the cue and then you give them the cue, hey, I know what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, I've heard that from several different sources, uh, that they sense the, the change in body chemistry through various uh, emotional states that we go through.
1: And, you know, one of the cool thing is we don't have research yet, so we're still kind of guessing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could be the gait changed. It could be that my muscular tension changed. Mm-hmm. It could be that he was able to hear my, my heart rate and my heart rate was elevated. We don't know. It's a mystery. We know how to train him. Um, you can train it very, very easily. Um, so if you know if you have a panic attack and you take medication to alleviate the panic attack, then all you do is you take your medication, cue a behavior, reward the behavior, and the dog will pretty soon start cueing you to take your medication. And that was something that Defer learned to do very, very easily. Um, so he was able to tell me when I needed to take take medication to alleviate panic, um, to alleviate migraines. Um, So he had a number of alerts um, and we don't train the alert. We train the response, but the dog learns it very, very easily um, if they are talented at the work. And this is where you've got to have the right dog for the job. And so, you know, he, he was... Such an amazing dog, and it made a difference because what it meant was, instead of being incapacitated by flashbacks, migraines, or panic attacks, then I was able to go out and do my job. And it taught me a number of things. It helped me to gain self confidence. And one of the very, very interesting things is is that um, by the time that he'd been done teaching me what I needed to know, nine years later. I didn't need to have a service dog, and it's been about five years now since I've had a panic attack. Um, that'll be longer than that now—six years, maybe six or seven years—since I've had a panic attack. Excellent. Which is amazing because I had panic attacks that you know three and four times a day that were just incapacitating me. And so I think that you know the best situations with service dogs is when they facilitate the ability for the person to overcome the issues. And that is not going to be with every disability. That was with my disability. So I don't want to get anybody's hopes up that, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to happen with every single one. But, um, you know, I think that, that that's one of the cool things with with this particular dog.
0: Nice. Wow, that's excellent. Um, what would you think some of uh, Difa's favourite activities would be?
1: <laughs> His very, very favourite number one activity was um, off-leash search and rescue, where he was allowed to air scent and go and find a victim. And uh, it actually got to be a little bit of a problem because when we did that, I would send my victim out two or three hours ahead, and they'd have a walkie-talkie, and then I would come to where we're tracking, and I'd key my mic, and the the walkie-talkies make a particular kind of noise, and Deef would hear it, and he'd know what he was doing, and he would go and, and find the victim, and that was great. He was really good at it. He really loved it, and it, it tied into my interests of being in the outdoors and being in the wilderness and that kind of thing, and You know, he was really good at it. He really loved it. And that all went well until one day I was in a shopping mall, and one of the security guards um, keyed their mic, and it went bloop, (laughs) and Deef just turned on, and he was like, I know what to do. I know what to do. We're going to find somebody. I don't know who we're going to find amongst the thousands of people in the shopping mall, but we're going to find them, and then... I had to be like, okay, dude, let's have a little conversation here. You do not get to track in the shopping mall. And, uh, but that was, that was, I think, Deef's number one favorite activity. Although, you know, I I have to say he loved his job. He absolutely adored going to work in the morning. And we do things like, I remember going to an Ian Dunbar conference one time. And at the end of the day, Deef was just bored. He'd been lying under my seat in the conference all day, and and he had a thing for water bottles. And um, so what I used to do at the end of conferences, I would take off his vest, stand in the doorway with the recycling box, and I would let him go and fetch water bottles. And I'll never forget him running up and down those aisles, getting water bottles. The only thing was, was I ended up having to ask presenters the service dog is going to clean up afterwards. Please make sure if you have not finished your water and you're leaving it under your seat, put the lid on. Because he would run with a full water bottle trailing water from one end <laughs> to the other with no problem at all.
0: <laughs>
1: uh. So he, he loved anything that involved retrieving and scent work. Because, of course, once he ran out of the first water bottles, you had to search for them. But he would get himself in trouble once in a while when we were, I remember one time we were going through uh, security in an airport and I used to strip off his vest, leave him on a sit-stay. I would go through, send his vest through through the, the, uh, the x-ray machine. And then on the other side, I'd call him through. And this particular airport, they put the recycling bin right beside him. <laughs> and I turned around and I looked and he's got that little twinkle in his eye. And he's like, There's something there, and I'm going to get it. (laughs) So I had to call him, of course, and uh, the security guard told me that I could call my dog through. And instead of saying here, I knew that little twinkle in his eye, I knew he was going to go for the water bottles. So I just told him bring, which... To him meant that I was most likely going to throw it for him. Of course, I was not going to throw it for him, but I wasn't about to tell him that I was not going to throw it. And uh, I had him deliver it to the security guard. And the security guard said to me, well, what was that all about? And I said, we're only doing one today. I do not want to spend all day fetching water bottles because he would empty that recycling bin for you as fast (laughs) as you would. So, like I said this dog had an incredible sense of humor and you know a lot of his his humor happened when we traveled because the his regular routine was you know off and he would he would be able to to get himself into trouble and so with Deef, he he, he knew things and he knew them very very well and he'd try and twist them around a little bit um, you know, I remember he he loved, ret- um, and Chesapeake Bay Retrievers are nothing if not passionate about retrieving. And uh, there was one time I I was in an airport and we got a long delay and they were just putting defibrillators into the airport, and so I came across the firefighters, you know, doing doing their done re- uh, defibrillators and they said, well, why don't you come and try this out with our Annie, they call them. And, and, you know, they're just a mannequin, and you can try the defibrillator out and you can learn how to do those. And and I thought that was a really good idea on a downstay beside a table. And that table had a firefighter, and he was giving away little bears to the kids who came by. Mm -hmm. And Adif was very good. He put up with me learning how to use the defibrillator, and then he got bored. And he started making googly eyes at the firefighter who was giving out the bears. And then he would look at me and look at the firefighter and look at the bears. And then he would sit and he'd look at me and he'd look at the firefighter and he'd look at the bears. And the firefighter said to me, what's he doing? And I said, he's begging for a bear. (laughs) And the fellow said, well, can he have one? I'm like, oh, you bet he can have one. And you know what? It sits right next to my desk here. I've, I've still got it. Well, The bears came in plastic. I said, just strip off the plastic and give them the bear. So Deef had this bear and he then paraded it around to each of the firefighters, not to any of the um the the traveling public just the firefighters he knew which ones were which he was very observant and he would sit in front of them and show them his bear and he wanted them to take it and look at it and he didn't want them to throw it he wanted it back <laughs> and it was hysterical because after we were done he carried that bear all the way from the demo of the defibrillators into a bookstore where he put two feet on on the the counter where you pay to show the cashier his bear and then he took it with us all the way down to where the waiting room was to go on the airplane showed it to the the woman who was checking us in and again he didn't want to give it up he didn't want her to throw he just wanted her to see his bear then we got we always pre-boarded, of course. He showed it to each of the crew and then he took it into the cockpit to show the <laughs> captain. And he was proud of his bear. That was his bear. And he wanted everybody to know that he had his bear. So, you know, this is this is one of the things about living with a dog who is highly, highly trained, but also living with a dog who is incredibly creative, incredibly smart, and you know he he could easily have gotten in trouble if it wasn't for the agreements we made, and we made some pretty important agreements. One of them was you have to ask permission before you do stuff. Um I remember one time i was uh, I was uh, having dinner with Suzanne Clothier when she was speaking in Toronto. We were in a very nice Japanese restaurant, and he was asleep under the the chair behind me. And, you know, the waiter comes by and he's making googly eyes at the dog and the other customers are making googly eyes at the dog. And that's a pain when you have a service dog is that everybody wants to say hello to your service dog. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, he's making googly eyes at them and they're making googly eyes at us. And about an hour into dinner, he stood up, turned around and looked at me and looked at the other diners. And what he was saying is, you know, I'm bored. And I would really like to go and greet the other diners now. <laughs> and it was, it was amazing that, you know, he could have gotten himself into so much trouble because if it wasn't for the agreement, you must ask permission first. That's a dog who would have just taken off and gone and wrecked havoc all over the restaurant. But he was, you know, he was willing to ask permission. And that gave me the opportunity to say not right now. I... I didn't want to say no, and I arranged for him to say hello to people later, but to say not now was a really important thing for that dog because if I hadn't, then he would have been just doing his own thing. And you know, it, it was really amazing because um he had an incredible memory too. Um, Suzanne Clothier came and spoke at my dog training facility. Um, we had her in for a, for a weekend conference to do a two-day seminar. And um, I brought Deef in and he saw Suzanne and he recognized her. But he also recognized because he'd seen me speaking and been at many conferences where lots of people had spoken that she was busy so we were just off to the side and he lay down and then when she saw him he sat right up and looked straight at her and suzanne is a gem suzanne is an incredible incredible animal person and she excused herself from the seminar and she said excuse me i have to say hello to my friend and i told Deef, go say hi to suzanne he ran across the stage did his happy puppy dance and wiggle, wiggle, wiggle and leaned into her. And then once they were done greeting, he came back and went right back to work. But again, this is a dog who understood the convention of not now, soon, later, ask first. Don't just put your finger in the pudding. You've got to wait your turn in line. And I I always credit him with teaching me the importance of teaching a dog about social conventions because it allowed us to do many things that we would have been unable to do had he not understood those conventions. So the bear, you know, greeting people in the restaurant, greeting his friends, he always knew where we were when we landed. He knew who was supposed to pick us up and he would pick them out in a crowd. And he understood now is the time when we go and look for that person that we know is here to pick us up, and then we'll be able to move to the next step. And he understood social conventions. But that's training. That didn't come by accident. That's not magic. That is, you know, months and years of training of teaching the dog self control, teaching the dog to ask first, don't just take things, and you get more stuff. And it, it led to such a magical relationship.
0: No, it it absolutely sounds it. And I like so much that there's not that yes, no. It's a yes, but not right now. And then the dog is like, okay, well, I can chill a bit more because it's not like, oh, that means no. Oh, now I might think about it. Do I do it myself later or not? You know, so that's that's so nice.
1: It's important to understand with a service dog, particularly for a psychiatric service dog, that it's very much a two-way street. There were times when I was unwell, when Defer would say, you can't do that. So like the time that he made me sit down when my other dog was in the hospital. And you have to listen to your service dog. If your service dog says to you, you can't do that right now. um, More than once, I abandoned a grocery cart because he said, that's enough. You need to stop now. It's not your turn to do this right now. And in order for it to be effective, you teach the dog what behaviors you want them to do, but then you have to listen to them. And I find this is a hard concept for people who have not been partnered because they don't think about the fact that if the dog says, you need to leave now, if you don't leave, most likely you're going to get yourself into trouble. And so it becomes a two-way street. And... You know, one of the reasons that I think that Deefer was one of the most important dogs in my life ever is because we had a two-way relationship. And he taught me so much about the importance of having that two-way relationship. It's not just I'm in charge of the dog and the dog must do as I say. It's a mutual thing where sometimes I would say to him, okay, you know what? We've got to find our gate and I need your help to get me there and I am too confused to be able to deal with that on my own. So I'll tell you what, we're going down the hallway, help me out. And he would say, ah, well, I can do that. One of the things that he did for me, most people never realized he was doing it in a crowd, is he would touch people on the knee with his nose and they would feel something on their knee and not register that it was a dog and they would move out of my way. And so it was a way for me to move through a crowd very, very easily in that happened very organically. I never actually taught him to touch people, but people just would move out of the way and we'd be able to get where we wanted. And so I could tell him to go forward and he would keep me moving forward when there was so much stimulation that I might get overwhelmed. And what that did over time was it allowed me to learn to cope with high stimulation situations, but it got me to where I needed to go. But at the same time, I couldn't Then suddenly say, oh, well, you know what? I don't want to walk in a straight line now. My dog said you have to walk in a straight line, so I have to walk in a straight line. And I have to follow the service dog because he's doing what he's been trained to do. And it becomes a very important two-way street.
0: I just want to go back a little bit to some of the uh, tracking activities. So can you remember some of the more interesting, say, tracking runs on... So like terrain and and distance?
1: When I was first training him, um, it was by gosh and by golly, I didn't know what I was doing. I will be the first to admit, I did not have any clue about what I was doing. And um, I had him on a long line. And my tracking partner had gone oh, probably a kilometer and a half away. And he was ground tracking. He wasn't free tracking at the time. And we did this, this kilometer and a half at a dead run. But d dragged me straight down the hill through a hemlock forest. And I had scars on my arms that lasted for about eight years um, because he dragged me through a hemlock swamp and just skinned all the skin off of my forearms. Um, but, you know, he used his tracking, tracking skills in interesting situations. One of the problems that I had when I was overwhelmed was I wouldn't recognize people that I knew, including people I should recognize, like my husband. And I remember one time we used to fly out of, um, Buffalo, which is a, a town just across the border in the United States, because it could be a three or four hundred dollar difference in fare mm-hmm. if I was traveling in the United States to travel domestically as opposed to traveling internationally. So we'd go down to Buffalo and so on, and and I would travel from there. And I remember one time um, when we got to the got back from the airport, and I never never completely understood how he do that. Deaf always. Kn- knew who he was looking for by airport. Um, And my husband was coming to pick me up and he got to the airport and he couldn't find me and I couldn't find him. And Dee finally got fed up of me looking for John and he just found John for me. And he he just said, you know what, I'm going to find him. So he put his head up straight up in the air and he started to air send. And he sorted amongst the thousands of people in that airport, he sorted them all out and found John for me. And that was a, just such an amazing thing, you know, and totally inadvertent, totally never trained for, for him to do that in harness. He just took the information that he had from being a tracking dog and he applied it to a new situation. And, and I think that that's pretty amazing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, One of the questions I ask everyone is to complete the sentence, I can't believe my dog ate.
1: You know, I was, you told me you were going to ask me that. (laughs) And you know, I I can't believe that my dog didn't eat more stuff he ought not to have eaten. That was one of the things that Deef really never got into. He would eat, Eat whatever I gave him. Um, there were certainly times that when you know we were traveling, we would get stuck somewhere, and he'd end up having plain bacon and eggs for dinner as opposed to to dog food um, because I just couldn't get his dog food. But he never really ate anything he should not. He did, however, retrieve things he ought not.
0: <laughs> he retrieved
1: lots of things he ought
0: not. Okay, tell us about a couple of things that he retrieved that he should not. <laughs>
1: He, one time, somebody gave him a stuffed pelican as a gift for me coming to speak. And uh, he took that pelican and there he had finished all the water in the training hall. And at lunch, I used to let him run around and do his own thing. And he was taking the pelican and people would throw it for him. Anyways, he got the pelican um, and he couldn't find anything to drink. So he took it into the ladies' room dropped it in the toilet. he had a great big drink and then he retrieved it and I couldn't believe he retrieved that damn be and he he had water from one end to the other and he thought this was great. He squished it and the water came out he shook it and the water fell all over the place and people were running away and squealing and ah, I don't want it to touch me. He thought it was a good game. And, and and you know he he you were asking about his, his tracking and and the thing to understand about tracking is it's i just i just remembered something i think you'll find amusing he um he used to he used to tracking is more than just tracking a person it's the whole realm of scent games and he loved scent games so one of the things he would do is he would bring me a toy and he made it very clear to me that he wanted me to hide his toy so that he could go and search for it. That was a good game. But sometimes, you know, we live on a farm. Um, Sometimes I don't have time to hide the toy. So after a while, I said to him, you know what, Deef, you go hide it. And I'd hand it back to him and he'd run around. And he took to hiding it on himself. And I'll never forget him hiding it in the middle of the field. And then he would come back to me and he wanted me to send him to go and find it. So it didn't take me long to do that. So I could tell him to swing and he'd get in on my left side and I'd say, go search and he'd go and he'd find the toy. But the funny thing was watching him do it because he was the one who had hidden the toy. (laughs) And he would run all over the farm and you could see him pretending to look. And he would look in, you know, he'd look under things and he'd run around and run around and he'd be looking and looking and looking and looking. And then he would go to where he had left it. And Chesapeake's have incredible memories. And he would act very surprised, like, surprise, there's my toy. And he would get it, and he'd bring it to me, and he'd be all proud of himself. And then I could send him to do it again. And that, and that was really quite wonderful. And, you know, you, you sort of wonder what's going on. I'd love to be able to know what was going on in his head, because the one time I was speaking, I was in Cleveland. And I was just finished speaking and I was packing to leave and I was staying at a friend's house in Cleveland. I was packing to leave and he um, brought me a toy and he, he obviously wanted me to play the game. And I, I was like, if I don't have time, I'm, I'm packing not now. And he understood not now. So he buggered off and I figured he was just doing his thing and hiding it somewhere. And he came back without it and I tried to send him and he wouldn't go. I'm like, I don't get it. What's going on here? And so I tried to send him three or four times. He wouldn't go. He wouldn't go. So I went out in the hallway and there's the toy. And I walked up to it and I pointed it out. I'm like, look, Dave, here it is. And he got off the happy dance, but he wouldn't pick it up. And I picked it up and then he's bouncing and he's happy and he's happy and he's happy. So I gave it back to him and I went back to my packing. He comes to me a little while later and he doesn't have it. And I tried to send him and he wouldn't go and he wouldn't go and he wouldn't go and he wouldn't go. So I went out and it wasn't in the hallway. So I, I went down the hallway and I looked and it was in one of the other bedrooms. And when I found it, he danced the happy cat. I am very certain
0: <laughs> that he
1: was trying to teach me to search.
0: Yeah, I was just and he thinking was, that.
1: And now, all of the cognitive, I've talked to some people who, who study cognition and they say that is beyond what dogs are able to do. And I have always wondered if that is actually beyond what, dogs are able to do. What the heck was D for doing? Because he was absolutely clear that he was hiding it and I was coming to get it. And I've had cognitive scientists telling me, you are anthropomorphizing his intent. You are putting meaning where there isn't. The one thing I'm going to tell you is when you are partnered that strongly with a service dog, when you are That connected. When they tell you to do something, you figure it out. And I am convinced he wanted me to learn how to search. It was just my turn. He did it one other time here on the farm, and those were the only two times. And it was in the last couple of years of his life. So I would say he would have been ten or eleven the first time, and it was just maybe six months before he died the second time. And I have often wondered if he could have talked, what he would have explained to me as to what was going on. What did he really want?
0: Very, very interesting to think about.
1: Oh, it is. It is.
0: So you mentioned you've been on the farm. Were there any other species he liked interacting with?
1: Um... You know, I mean, typical Chesapeake Bay Retriever. He was—he had dogs that he liked. He liked the female dogs on our farm. He had an absolute death match with one of our other male dogs, and that was—that was really, really hard to juggle living with him, with a dog, and the two of them had it in for each other. We never neutered him for a whole lot of reasons, um, but um, we had another intact male. And they got into it over a bitch in heat one time. And so the two of them had it in for each other. We had horses on the farm and he would go out and see the horses and, and so on. But I wouldn't say he was particularly bonded to the horses. And we also had chickens and he didn't care. Um, a couple of places he stayed, we had cats and and eh, he was okay with the cats. But I wouldn't say he was particularly savvy about cats. Um. I, I gotta say his thing was me and John I mean we were his people and then he had a circle of friends that he felt were really important people in his life so Suzanne clothier was one a number of my clients um, his, my tracking partner those were people that he felt very strongly about and you know he he was very clear that those were his friends and when we went to see those people, um you know I had a client in New York City that he just adored um, and when we went to New York he knew who she was and he knew where her house was and she knew he knew her husband and he was just really really clear about you know those are my friends as to other species, I don't think that he particularly cared
0: hmm. um apart from the bear that you mentioned, did he have any other favorite Toys or items?
1: Um, I mean, he had a rotation of favorite items. I, I have a little uh, a little round ball with feet on it that fit in my pocket. It's just a little round squeaky ball that I always took with me when I was traveling. Because one of the things when you're traveling is it's very hard to carry food across international borders. So I had to carry something I could use as a reinforcer. And I would, would often use that. So he particularly liked that. Um... He liked picking up ducks, but we never hunted, although the you know he we did do a little bit of hunt training just for kicks. Um, but I, I would say that it it would go kind of by fits and starts. He'd have one that he'd carry around for a while. Um, when we thought he had cancer, I went out and bought him what what I called his cancer stick, and it was just a big rubber stick that he liked towards the end of his life. Um, but no, I wouldn't say that he had any particular particular love of a toy. I think one of the things to understand about him, though, is that in terms of environmental enrichment, he led an incredibly enriched life. So there was no need for him to have a particular toy that was particularly important because. I mean, the world was his oyster. He he traveled, he saw things. He got to pick up a much wider variety of items because when I was first head injured, um, he I had him doing a lot of retrieving for me. Um, so he was picking up things like tin cans and, you know, um, Bags and his leash and uh, my car keys and you know so he had so many things that he had to pick up. I'm not sure that it was a special opportunity for him to pick up any particular item.
0: Ah, oh, nice. I mean, and, and with that much enrichment, absolutely. We just touched that you thought that he might have had cancer. How? Was he, I mean, like uh, health-wise, and were there any any, for any dramas?
1: In general, I mean, apart from having nearly taken off the skin off of one of his legs at seven months old, in general, he was very, very healthy. At about 11 and a half, I threw the frisbee for him one night. He leaped up to catch it, and as he leaped, he screamed. And when he came down, he wouldn't put any weight on his right hind. So we rushed him off to the emergency room and they radiographed him. And on x-ray, it showed that it looked like um, the, the head of his femur. So the top of his leg bone in back, it looked all cauliflower-like. And for a little while there, we thought that he had something called osteosarcoma. It turned out he didn't, but I had about two or three very, very bad days where I thought I was going to lose him imminently. Osteosarcoma is a terrible disease because there's not much they can do for it. It's usually results in a high amputation, but this was a hind leg and there was some involvement of his pelvis. Um, In the end, what we think happened was that he had severe osteoarthritis in his right hind. And it's unusual that a dog would have that in just one hip. His other hip was fine. Mm -hmm. And he, um, what we think happened was in osteoarthritis, the bone grows and you get spicules or or kind of spikes off of the joint. And we think what happened was one of the um, spicules broke off and then got lodged in the joint and then eventually dislodged on its own. However, from that time forward, his career was very, very limited. Um, He must have been just trying to think how old he was i think he might might have been closer to 12 maybe even 12 and a half Uh, it's so hard to remember kind of the timeline of these things but he went on to live for another probably year and a half beyond that although from that day forward he was on medication for the rest of his life for pain
0: thank you very very much for sharing the life of of Deef and and parts of yourself as well i mean it's a it's an interconnection there
1: well you you know i think that's that's an important piece is to understand that when you have a dog that you are partnered that solidly with you are part of them and they are part of you
0: absolutely and and, yeah and i think that that goes from even if someone thinks oh yes it's just a, a pet dog that i have in the yard uh all the way up to that in, intense relationship that you have, like you shared with with a service dog that you rely on so much for.
1: And you know, that's one of the things that I miss. I I sometimes think I might go back to doing some service dog training. It's incredibly hard work, but um, it is one of the things I miss. Is that a really good partnership is is profound, and the dog and the human become very tightly linked.
0: Thank you very much again. Um, before you go, do you want to share some of your links and what you're doing at the moment?
1: Absolutely. Um, you can find me professionally at Dogs in the Park, which is my company in Guelph, Ontario. We do in-person and online obedience training and behavior consulting from puppies through adults and and into dogs who have serious behavior problems. Um, I also have, uh, so you can find us at www.dogsinthepark.ca. So we are a CA, not a com, Um, CA for Canada. Um, And uh, I'm also doing some professional development stuff. So, Um, One of the things that I am very, very involved with is Losing Lulu. I'm the founder of Losing Lulu, and that is, of course, the online Facebook group for people who have lost dogs due to behavioral euthanasia. So if your dog has passed away because of a behavior problem, and other pets too, but it's primarily dogs, although we've had llamas and cats and rabbits, and my horse died of a behavior problem. So there there are those things. Um, and uh, my partner on losing Lulu, Trish McMillan, and I are doing um, courses on how to talk to your clients about behavioral euthanasia. We also have some um, stuff for for people who are considering behavioral euthanasia. And then I also am offering um, private webinars, and you can get all of those through my website and i'd love to i'd love to talk to australians i enjoy talking to australians
0: <laughs> ah and i'm sure that all the australians here and, and in fact anyone in the world would just love to talk to you it's uh, just the, with the passion and the and the wisdom that you have uh, it's been an absolute pleasure
1: it's been a lot of fun i, I it's kind of funny, today I was uh, talking to one of my friends, I'm, I'm going hunting tomorrow and uh, he and I were talking about sort of what are you doing this evening and I said, well I'm interviewing you in Australia. He says, you're not going to move, are you? And I said, no, I'm <laughs> not going to move. And that's one of the fun things about the World Wide Web is I can be in Australia today.
0: Uh, well again, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and look forward looking forward to catching up later sometime.
1: I would absolutely love to talk to you about anything. Um, this has been a ball. I've had a really great time, Robert.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Take care.
1: Take care. Bye now.
0: Thank you very much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Of course, if you did, why not tell a friend about it and carry on the conversation? If you'd like to support the show monetary-wise, Hop on to Ko-fi, that's K-O-F-I, and find the relaxed dog. And as always, like, share on whatever host you are listening to this on. Until next week, stay safe and remember, your dog is family.